Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Follow along if you would, please. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the throne, sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This week, as I was studying this passage, uh, I, just, I just kept coming back to this idea. I've already alluded to it a little bit in my prayer and, and mentioned a couple things about the worship that recenters us. The, the, this image that we come to in Revelation 19, the second half of this chapter here, is Christ the conqueror that Christ the conqueror that refocuses our perspective. I just kept coming back to this sort of image as I went through my week studying this passage that, that one of the things that is vastly important for us as believers this side of heaven to get clear is this focus on Christ as conqueror. And so throughout this past week I would get, you know, distracted. Uh, I, I'm, I'm an extrovert, people. I mean, like, I'm a people addict. Um, really badly so. I've sort of talked about that uh, a few months ago when we were talking about getting over anger and things like that. And and, and so this, this people addiction for me means that I really easily get distracted. Um, yes, I've been tested twice for ADD. So I would get distracted this past week and I would lose my focus. And then when I would get back to the text, when I get back to Revelation 19, then I would just keep feeling like, ah, yes, yes, this is what I need. And then, of course, you know, five seconds goes by. Uh, and, and, I, and I get distracted about something else on my to-do list or a call or a text message or responsibility or a, a honeydew kind of thing. And, and I'd get off into like, you know, spiritually unfocused netherworld in my life. And then I'd come back to the passage and I'd think, ah, yes, Christ the conqueror. Refocus on Him. So I kept seeing myself throughout this week kind of going down to my life, looking at the earthly things going on, and I'd get to the Word, and my head would be lifted up again to, oh yes, here comes Christ, riding on a white horse. 
So back and forth, I sort of went all week long. And, uh, <clears throat> and, I, and I realized that this is something, of course, that happens for me and uh, probably for many of you in lots of ways. We sort of lose our focus. We sort of lose our center. We get distracted by the things of this world where we've got our heads down at things that are going on all around us, distracting us, when really what we need to continue to do is look at heaven opened with a picture of Christ that brings clarity. I realized that it was sort of like something that I experienced um, in high school. Uh, I didn't really realize it at the time, uh, but I lost my focus, and it was affecting me uh, in, in high school. It was junior year, and I was playing basketball uh, on, the, on, the, on the, uh, the high school team. This was back when we all had, you know, those really short gym shorts with the sort of rounded off sides. <clears throat> they were like dorkily short, okay? Uh, mercifully, I have destroyed all those pictures in a get-rid-of-blackmail uh, bonfire. So, <clears throat> not really, but I, I would like to. So when I was on the basketball team in high school, um, I didn't have a very large arsenal of weapons in my game. Uh, I wasn't the amazing player that I am now. Can I get an amen, T-Banks? There you go. <clears throat> no, honestly, though, uh, my only real weapon was to just shoot the ball. I mean, that was it. In fact, my, <laughs> my coach pulled me aside uh, early on in my junior year and said, yeah, Scott, we pretty much don't want you dribbling or passing. So you're just going to come off of a screen. A screen is when a, a, a guy or two s- stands like this, and then you come behind, you get the ball, and, and, and Scott, you're pretty much just going to come, and you're going to shoot the ball on the other side of the screen. So that's, that's what I did. And about that same time, early on in my junior year, I started to notice that, that all my shots were falling short. Shot after shot, short, short, short. I began to feel a little distraught uh, because my bread and butter, my, my, my silky smooth jump shot, <clears throat> was failing me. And then I also began to notice in math class, where I sat at a healthy distance from the teacher in the back, I began to notice that the board was a little blurry. And, then, and, and, and I began to realize that, in fact, months after it was affecting me, I'd lost my focus. Think of how weird that is. My focus had been off, in fact, for many months, both with my jump shot and in math class, and, and, and things were blurry, and I, and I was short on my jump shot, and it had been affecting me for, for months, in fact, by the time I ever began to really notice that it was the case. I know, I sound like a typical male. You know, how can instantly improve vision not be in the top of your to-do list? Have you ever had something going wrong for quite a while before you noticed? (laughs) It's almost like, well, of course. In fact, that's kind of always how it is, isn't it? Something's been off, but you didn't notice it until someone says something or something happens to jolt you into the reality about it. It's like you don't realize it until after it's affected you quite a bit. And I think that this is something that's really easy for us to uh, be unaware of, that we've lost focus It's really easy to go through life unaware that you've lost some focus. And I think a lot of people get here uh, spiritually unfocused and without purpose. In fact, I think a lot of people get there and don't really realize they're there until something that God allows in our life or that happens to us sort of knocks us back into reality. And we realize, I've been this way for, for months, perhaps years. 
I've lost my focus. I know that, that I get here multiple times a day. And I have, to, I have to fight back to get my head back in the game. When I'm, when I'm overwhelmed by responsibilities or I'm angry at someone or I'm frustrated about my own sin, I all too easily lose my focus. All it takes sometimes for me is just one, one little thing. And I, and I get into this spiritual tailspin in my life. Distracted by a, a world that keeps me from, from seeing the big picture, the eternal focus, the perspective on Christ, the conqueror that I really need. And I think that that's one of the things going on here in this passage. That's part of why we need to be here refocusing our lives Sunday after Sunday on worship of Christ the conqueror. It's a recentering time in worship for us. It's getting your spiritual bearings in order again so that we're ready again to walk out that door and have perspective that's about Christ the conqueror and that that's what informs who we are and what we do and gives us purpose. We badly, badly need this kind of focus. Otherwise, we are easily sent into this sort of tailspin spiritually and we get distracted. And then weeks, months, for some years down the road, we realize, you know... I have really been living for myself, haven't I? And then the picture becomes clear. And then we see all these things that led to get to the place where we are now. Well, this is a jolt. Christ the conqueror is a jolt to the system. When our focus is clear, when our sights are set on the work of the conquering king, the distracting problems of our life begin to fade away. When our focus is clear, when our sights are set on the work of the conquering king, problems in our family and in our marriage and our workplace begin to sort of have this eternal perspective like, this is not going to defeat me. But if that's not where your focus is, then defeat is everywhere around you. I'm not just making this up. It comes straight from the text. This issue of seeing straight. Seeing straight comes from the passage today. When John says three times in Revelation 19, he says, I saw. Meaning, he had the vision opened up to him. He sees three pictures that we're going to look at today that give spiritual clarity about the stakes in life here and now. For the last two chapters that we've been studying, uh, beginning at chapter 18, he's been hearing a lot of things. He's been hearing a lot of things, but here he begins to see things again. He sees a vision again. Pick it up at verse 11, where at the very beginning, first three words there has a two-word phrase, then I saw, that two-word phrase, I saw, is a, it's a natural sort of literary marker in this text. It gives us our three sections in the passage today that we've uh, put on your study notes there. We see, I saw, we see, I saw, at the beginning of verses 11 and 17 and 19. Uh, if you're a circler, you may just want to circle those so you can sort of visualize those places there. <clears throat> it's helpful to visualize those sections that all start again at uh, 11, 17, and 19. So the text gives us these three natural markers to show us three different pictures that help bring us to spiritual clarity. The first picture is, I saw the glory of King Jesus. I saw the glory of King Jesus. And this is the main image for us that sets the tone for the whole passage. The second picture is that I saw the great supper of God. And the third picture, I saw Christ the victorious in the final 
battle. And those begin at 11, 17, and 19. So the picture of reality that we're given here is a picture of heaven. And, and heaven is the truth to which earth is sort of catching up. Heaven is the truth in Revelation to which earth is sort of, and our lives are sort of catching up. So when he sees heaven opened, and this isn't just this place, it's multiple places in Revelation, uh, four times at least, John is getting a glimpse of what reality really is, of the place out of which we are really called to live our lives. To not be distracted by this, but to lift up to this. So heaven is the truth to which earth is catching up. Look at verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold... That's a Bible way of saying, uh, check this out. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now this, this white horse is a, is a real powerful image here that introduces quite a few descriptions uh, that follow. We're going to camp out here for a minute, so uh, press pause. Three things of note here about this white horse thing. Uh, the first is that white is a symbol of purity, but in Revelation, this white symbol of purity has a particular bent to it. Uh, It's not just purity in general terms, but it is a spiritual purity, is a righteous standing before God. You may want to circle that word white and write next to it spiritual purity or righteous standing before God. Uh, In fact, it takes on a couple different themes in Revelation about about persevering through persecution. Uh, Those who receive the white stone uh, earlier on in Revelation and uh, a couple of the places where they're wearing white garments Uh, Those are symbols of having persevered through persecution. So white is about spiritual purity. Uh, This whiteness symbolizes righteous standing before God. The second thing to note is that riding on a horse is a sign of victory. And this is important for for where we're headed in the passage here. Uh, The second thing to note is that riding on a horse is a sign of victory. For a general returning from war or even for a general who's riding into the city that has just been conquered. Uh, Many tend to think that this is the image here, is that Christ is, in a sense, riding into the city that has been conquered. So the generals would, if they won the battle, they'd ride into the town on a white horse as a symbol of victory. So to put them together, this white horse is an image of spiritual victory. Now, One more little thing to note here. This is a picture of Christ the Conqueror riding into a battle he's already won. This is a picture of Christ the Conqueror riding into a battle that he's already won. I want to say that one more time because I I, I use those words intentionally that way. It's a picture of Christ the Conqueror riding into a battle that He's already won. This falls in line with other things that we've seen in Revelation. The Lamb standing as though slain. Uh, This motif was exactly the same there. The beast whose mortal wound was healed. We've been saying throughout this series uh, that there is this already not yet dynamic going on in revelation this already not yet thing and the fancy phrase you may want to look up is inaugurated eschatology we've spelled it out for you on the life group questions there on number three inaugurated eschatology it just means the beginning of the end is really what it means 
uh, the beginning of the end in its most simple terms. Uh, in, in other words, the end times have already begun. They're not done. Nobody really thinks that they're done. A few here and there kind of do. But uh, they're not done, but they've already begun. So when Jesus came, he began the establishment of that heavenly kingdom on earth. It's not done yet, but it's begun. It's inaugurated. We know that this is the case because we are able to repent and it means something. If the kingdom of God was not available in some form or fashion to us, we could not meaningfully say, I repent of my sin, God, and it mean anything. So what Christ has done when he came on the cross is established the kingdom, at least begun it. Listen to John 5, John 5, 24 and 25. Uh, you may want to write that down, look it up later. It's a, it's a crucial passage. It's a really cool passage. This is Jesus speaking about this sort of already not yet thing going on. John 5, 24 and 5. He says, truly, truly, that's a rabbi way of saying, listen up, this is true. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Thank you, that was bothering me. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead, meaning the spiritually dead here, will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. When Jesus came and he began to establish his kingdom, the offer of salvation became real enough and present enough now that hearing and believing in Christ means passing from spiritual death to spiritual rebirth. And you don't have to wait for that. That victory is already the case now in, in such a reality that Colossians 3, if you want to look this up later, Colossians 3, 1 to 3, talks about our having riches and, and our standing with Christ as existing here and now in heaven, even though we're not in heaven. So there's this already not yet thing that's all over the place. So when, when Jesus came and began to establish his kingdom, the offer of salvation was real enough and present enough that we can pass from death to life now. So this, so this image, to tie this back into Revelation 19, this image of Christ coming as an already victorious king isn't crazy. We'll see this in the following descriptions. Not in all of them, but in some of them, and I'll point them out. This already victorious king thing. The rest of 11 here describes how Christ makes war. It says, the one sitting on it, meaning the white horse, is called faithful and true. That's a sort of a title there for Christ, like it's sort of his name. In, in other words, that he, that he is faithful and true is so true that it could be said that that's his name. Uh, and we'll touch on that a little bit later here. But it's because he's faithful and true that in righteousness, he says, he judges and makes war. So unlike us, who out of our unrighteousness judge all the time, he is able, because he is faithful and true, and he is perfect in his character and nature, and the reality about him is that in heaven, that he can make war and do it justly. Another symbol of his uh, faithfulness and, and being true is verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Uh, this reminds us of Revelation 1, I think it's uh, 9 through 20. 
That's that vision of the Son of Man where it says He has eyes like the flame of fire. And that's how He walks through the churches, if you'll remember. And He has spiritual vision and clarity to see all of the nooks and crannies of our lives and see all those places of sin that need redemption for us. So He has perfect spiritual vision and clarity to seek out sin. It says, On His head are many diadems. This is a a further sign of His victory before the battles begun this is a further sign of his victory before the battles begun notice it says that there are many diadems there in verse 12 many diadems uh, unlike unlike the dragon and the false prophet earlier in revelation who had a definite number of diadems because they are fake christs they had seven and ten this description of christ says he has many diadems he has lots of crowns innumerable diadems it says he has a name written that no one knows uh, but himself which is sort of funny because we've just been told his name is faithful and true and then here in verse 13 he's going to be called the word of god and then also we have another name for him king of kings and lord of lords in verse 16 so then there's also this weird insertion that says he has a name written that no one knows but himself so how does he still have this mysterious name? <laughs> uh, simply put, uh, this means that there are still realities about him that are not yet revealed. There are still realities about Jesus uh, that we don't know. Which is a description of his perfection and in his character and his nature that are beyond our ability to comprehend them. In the Old Testament and in Jewish tradition, uh, to name something was to talk about that thing's essential quality. Uh, To name a person was something that was done to name the the, the character of that person. Uh, Think of Adam's job in the garden. It was naming things. So, So this is a way in verse 12 of saying that until the new heavens and the new earth are created, uh, recreated, until we're in eternity with Christ, there is more about Jesus to be revealed. So, let's move on. Verse 13 says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. There is some question as to whose blood this is. Is this Jesus' blood as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? Is it the blood of of martyrs, of saints, who are also uh, a part of following Christ? Or is it those... Um, that are Christ's enemies, I think it's probably the latter. Uh, The best explanation is that it's the blood of Christ's enemies there in verse 13. We know this from Isaiah 63, 2-3. If you want to look that up later, it's a a good verse that that sort of is the background for what we're seeing here in Revelation. Isaiah 63, 2-3. Let me read it for you. It says, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? And then this is a quote from the Messiah here. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So the robe is dipped in blood because it's the blood of Christ's enemies. That is, anyone who follows the beast or the false prophet as advocates of the evil one. So, so here's another picture of Christ that is already and not yet conqueror. All these pictures that we're seeing so far show him as having already conquered the white horse, 
the diadems, the robe dipped in blood. And yet at the end of the passage here, there's more battle yet to come. And in fact, only two of the three of the fake trinity are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, Satan, uh, the evil one, in uh, chapter 20, in a couple weeks, we'll cover that. <clears throat> so, there's this already not yet thing going on in the white horse, the, uh, the diadems, and the robe dipped in blood. Uh, end of verse 13, here we see that other name. The name by which he is called is the Word of God, meaning the testimony of Christ as King is what brings victory over sin. The testimony of Christ as King is what brings victory over sin. Verse 14, it says, The armies of heaven, uh, this army is some combination of angels and or saints, uh, and they are arrayed, they're dressed in fine linen, white and pure, and they were following him on white horses, which is to say that when we are focused on Christ, we share in his victory, both now and then. And then there's this cool picture that we see on the painting behind me. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now, now this artist has taken this passage figuratively. Uh, the sword is in his hand and he is striking down uh, the beast or the dragon. Uh, I think it's probably the dragon, but I don't remember what she wrote on the uh, explanation. So this is, a, this is a figurative way in verse 15 of saying that the testimony about Jesus, the verbal speaking of the Word of God, is how Jesus works to both proclaim His truth and to strike down evil. That's how He counters untruth. This is why it's, it's super critical to be a man or woman of the Word. Because this is a picture of how Christ brings about judgment against sin. This is, this is how Christ brings conviction of sin even for us before we knew Him as Lord. Think about how you became convicted of sin. It's because you heard the truth about Christ. You heard the Word of God, the two-edged sword that He wields, and it cuts you open. It does heart surgery on you. Every single one of us, if we have been reborn spiritually, has undergone heart surgery because of the Word of God. And not only does it convict us of sin by which we repent, but that same truth is what damns those who do not repent. So that's what verse 15 is talking about. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nation. The same Word of God will come to defeat sin among the unrepentant, just like it comes to convict sin in the repentant. So don't be surprised, by the way, while we're at it, don't be surprised that sanctification is hard and frustrating and is not something you really like a whole lot. Because God wants to, for those who are repentant, He wants to continue to use the Word, the truth of the Word, to cut us open. And, and, and for many of us in the body of Christ, we get to this place where it's like, I, I, okay, I, I've done this much, I'm going no further. I'm done. I'm done cutting me open, Jesus. The same power that He wields as the true Word of God convicts unrepentant sinners is the power of the truth of the Word to convict repentant sinners. 
The power is demonstrated in this next phrase there at the end of 15. It says, he'll rule them with a rod of iron. It says, and this is like that passage in Isaiah 63, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And verse 16 finishes up this picture by saying, on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The second picture we see here is the Great Supper of God. The Great Supper of God. And this is another picture of victory, but it's another sort of ugly scene here. We've seen his robe that was dipped in blood, and now we see the Great Supper of God. And this is an ugly scene. Look at verses 17 and 18. Let's read those two verses here. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. This is a contrast to the marriage supper of the Lamb we talked about last week. This is the great supper of God. Verse 18, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That list just continues to go on and on there to say that no one who is unrepentant will not be a part of this great supper of God. There's a little background here from the Old Testament that sort of explains why this sort of uh, uh, ugly scene, this morose picture. When God began His relationship with His people, He promised to hold up His end of the bargain. Uh, And these three scenes in Revelation 19 are pictures of His promise that He will be faithful. Now when God was establishing that promise with His people, His relationship in in a covenant with them, He he also promised a curse. Every every covenant has uh, benefits that will uh, occur when you make a testimony, a a covenant with someone. And they also have a curse side of it in the Old Testament and in Jewish tradition. So the curse side of it we see in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 Uh, verses 25 and 6 especially. This is the background for this great supper of God here. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, 25 and 6. It says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. This is God talking to the people of Israel and, and, and telling them about the curses that will follow if they are not obedient to following God. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And then it says, and your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. So this the second picture of victory here is the great supper of God where uh, we see birds Uh, figuratively eating the flesh of Christ's enemies. The third picture is seeing Christ victorious in the final battle. As we said earlier, this is the first two of the three of the fake trinity. The evil one, Satan, is uh, thrown into uh, the fire later on in Revelation 20. But here in Revelation 19, the first two are uh, done away with quickly in three quick verses. The finish of the battle is described. Verse 19 says, And I saw, there's that phrase, that trigger again, I saw. And I saw the beast. This is the beast that we met in uh, Revelation 15, chapter 15. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, who are described here as the followers of the beast. 
I saw them with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And it says, and the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, remember Satan comes in the next chapter, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. There's part of that concept uh, of, of conscious torment. These two were thrown alive. So they're conscious, they're aware of their plight. They were thrown down alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. There's that word of God thing there again. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Friends, when... When life is hard, when pain and suffering are close at hand, when the strength to carry on seems distant and your day-to-day mundane routine seems devoid of purpose, please remember to lift your head to see Christ the Conqueror. Lift your head, get your nose in the Word, have a heart of continuous prayer before God to continue to learn, to focus, to regain your focus on Christ the Conqueror so that when temptation comes, you lift your head and you regain your focus. When the discouragement and the fear and the loneliness of your lives are are close at hand, what we do, like always in Scripture, is lift our head and regain our focus. Life this side of heaven is too hard to not have a mooring for us. An anchor at which we are gazing in our lives. And when the various responsibilities and tensions and and relationship difficulties and, and workplace frustrations, when those begin to set in in our lives and become the distracting things that are the stories we tell about ourselves, we have to have to be men and women of word and prayer to regain our focus on Christ the Conqueror. Because He is the one who will come and continue to finish what He has started. Which means that we can have hope and assurance now. We can be bold to live with total abandon using all of the various blessings He's given to us as stewards of what He's given to us to live for Him and no one else. The purpose for which we've been created is to bring God glory. And we do that, Scripture tells us. We bring Him glory by making disciples or followers of Christ. That's the purpose we lose if we're distracted. That's the New Testament purpose we lose if we're distracted. We've been created to bring God glory by making disciples, followers of Christ, first by by being one, and second, 
by helping others discover the adventure of a focused life on Christ. That's why one of our main mottos that we talk about at First Christian, we talk about the 3C life, is making disciple makers. We want to hold that up as the focus. Because when you're focused on that kind of goal, when you're following hard after Christ and are focused on Him, then you will seek the lost. You will work to make disciples. Personal sacrifice to make that happen will be a joy to you. And not drudgery. And if you keep looking down here, making disciples won't be your goal. If you keep looking down here, being distracted by the things thrown at us by the world, you will lose focus. I think it's real, real easy to lose focus and to get bogged down by our life's needs. And then boom, someday, weeks, months, for some years later, for some never, we realize that we've been off for a while and didn't even notice it. Didn't even notice it. We need to continue to read the Scriptures through the lens of the Great Commission, which is what He told us our purpose is. I want to close with a little tidbit I got from Oswald Chambers this week. I was reading Oswald Chambers this week. Uh, It's a great devo if you need uh, just something to refocus your your day in the morning, utmost.org or utmost for His highest. Um, there's this great little nugget about how some of this focus issue happens for us. He was speaking of the, the sort of key to the missionary's devotion. And, and his verbiage for Oswald Chambers, a missionary is anybody and everybody who cares about the Great Commission, which is a biblical definition. So the key to the missionary's focus, he said, the key to maintaining focus, he said, is this. In John 21, the Lord told us how our love for Him is to exhibit itself when He said, Do you love Me? He was asking the disciples. Do you love Me? And if so, then He said, Then feed My sheep. And then He says this. In effect, Jesus said, Identify yourself with My interests in other people. Identify yourself with my interests in other people. Not identify me with your interests in other people. There's a huge difference between those two. Jesus was saying identify yourself with my interests in other people. Not identify me with your interests, with my interests in other people. If you and I as the body of believers, are going to maintain focus on why God made us and what our life's purpose is, we have to be identified with His purpose, with His interests in other people. When we've lost focus, when we've become distracted, what we've done is we've identified Him with our worldly, earthly interests. That's what we've done. That's the opposite of what it means to be a disciple maker. That's backward. As if as if a relationship with God is just how we sanctify our purposes. 
And if this is you as it is sometimes me, getting out of whack about who we are and why we were created and what our purpose is, go back to the Word, look at Christ the Conqueror. See with clarity what He wants to teach us. I know that for me and for many of us, we need to get our noses in the Word and our hearts in prayer to regain focus on who we are and why God made us. Lord God,